This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com. Kevin Lynn. Uh, we're going to be discussing uh, the economic crisis and a lot of current events. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's insane what's going on right now, but I guess before we start things off, I think, Kevin, like a good way to start is if you just want to give our audience like a brief like background information, because it's been it's been at least a, a year. Yeah, well, maybe according two, to Skype, it's year. been just a little over a year since we last met. Right, connected. so if you want to just kind of, like, give some background information and uh, your organization's Progressives for Immigration Reform and uh, U.S. tech workers. Sure, sure, I'll start it off. I'm Kevin Lynn. I am a, uh, I turned 60 just a week ago, which is kind of cool, made it this far. According to my astrologer, the longest I've ever been in a life. So that's pretty cool. At least I got that going for me. Uh, born and raised on a small farm in Pennsylvania. Left home a couple days after I graduated from high school. Went in the Army. Stayed there for 11 years. Uh, ended up uh, becoming commissioned uh, an officer in the infantry. Was later branch transferred to Intelligence Corps. Worked as a counterintelligence officer for six years in Europe and Asia. Left that. Worked for Ross Perot for a couple years in his in his uh, political action group. I had volunteered during the campaign and after the campaign in '92, he hired me on. And then, uh, boy, got left politics. Kind of got into working for large accounting firms as a business development guy. Like I was Ern- uh, a director at Ernst and Young. And kind of got back into politics again as a volunteer uh, when Howard Dean ran for president and um, was head of a chapter in Southern Cal, the Pasadena Democracy for America. Yeah, back when you started out politically with Ross Perot and the Reform Party, and I noticed interesting some people are trying to, I have no idea what they're doing now, but some people are trying to revive that on Twitter. And then from the Reform Party and Ross Perot, you went on, you were kind of involved with the Zero-Zero's uh, progressive movement and the anti-war wing of the Democratic yeah. Party. That's obviously very different than what, what like, is considered progressive now. <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny. I tell people that the Overton window hasn't moved to the left. It's moved to the crazy. Um, right. I couldn't identify as a progressive today, although I'm kind of stuck with this name that we created in 2008. <laughs> but, but yeah, and uh, you know, uh, 
Then in 2008 was when I was on the executive board of the California Democratic Party as a delegate. I was in a town hall meeting on immigration and I was speaking and I said, you know, I'm the son of an immigrant. I get why, you know, I, I think when my mother came here in 1952, everyone benefited from immigration. The new arrivals, the people that were here, it was it was restrictive. It was also well regulated. And that is not the case today. And uh, that's kind of how we started Progressives for Immigration Reform. I was on the board for many years, one of the founding board members, and then in 2017, I moved back to the East Coast, took over as executive director. And I'm uh, curious, uh, I don't want to go on a, like, too much of a tangent before we get to the economy, but I'm curious, like, do you still have a lot of people on the left involved with that organization, considering how crazy things are now? That's a great point. I was in Dallas uh, over the weekend, and I was meeting with one of our supporters there. And we were talking about how difficult it is for us, for instance, for us to raise money. Because when progressives these days see what our mission is, they're like, no way. And people right of center, when they see the term progressive, uh, just won't touch that with a 10-foot pole. So. It's very difficult because when you looked at the environment years ago, people understood that there was a relationship between the number of people, particularly those in uh, high carbon footprint countries like the United States, and you know the, the, the damage being done to the ecosystem. Uh, that was very prevalent in the 60s, 70s, and then the 80s, it started to fall away to where even the Sierra Club became very, very, where they were, you know, were promoted restricting immigration and the numbers, looking at it in terms of the general population. Uh, but that has all fallen away. And that's really tragic uh, because, you know, you had, you have groups like the Sierra Club that understood that relationship between the size of the population. And I remember and the even like the shift because I do remember like even like current sitting Democratic senators like the ones that are considered moderate like Claire McCaskill and John Tester. I think even some of those types voted against George Bush's amnesty. Then now obviously everything's changed. Exactly. Uh, you know it's interesting. Uh, the founder of uh, you know when you look at people that founded, you know, who were involved early on in Earth Day, like Senator Gaylord Nelson, who's the founder of Earth Day, he was emphatic about population and the numbers. And um, unfortunately, what had happened is it was really a corruption. For instance, Sierra Club, it's, it's documented. I'm, I'm <laughs> I, this is not a fantasy. Uh, a fellow by the name of Galbaum donated a oh, hundred... Right. Around like the early two thousands, uh, I think it might have been the nineties. Maybe the late nineties, right? And it was only in the early two thousands that it, it, it became it was exposed. Uh, and I think the article ran in the Los Angeles Times about it. But Galbaum was a guy who had created some algorithm for Wall Street. Was very wealthy. Uh, donated a hundred million dollars to the Sierra Club. 
uh, with the stipulation that they would not mention immigration again. And that's when people like the current chairman of our board, Frank Morris, uh, another one of our directors, Ben Zuckerman, were really just pushed off, exercised from the Sierra Club. And then if you also want, if you want to comment on how you started Tech Workers, U.S. Tech yeah, Workers. Yeah, Tech Workers, boy, that's really the, the flagship now. Uh, when I took over as executive director in 2017, I realized the movement, that the immigration restrictionist movement, there was a gate, there was a blind spot. And that was these employment visa programs like H-1B, L-1, optional practical training, where those issues weren't being addressed. And these programs were bringing in a pipeline of cheap labor to literally displace our professionals. You can look at examples like what happened at Walt Disney, Northeast Utilities, SoCal Edison, Abbott Labs, uh, what we are seeing going on right now with CSX technology. Uh, we saw just last year or two years ago with Vanguard, where they're literally outsourcing all of these jobs, you know, these uh, t uh, IT jobs, uh, you know, back office accounting jobs. Uh, and they're uh, initially what happens is they will outsource them to an H-1B visa dependent consulting company. And in the past, Americans would have to train their replacements in order to get severance pay. It was crazy. So that's why we created U.S. Tech Workers, and that actually got us into the White House in August of 2020. And uh, it, it, we, we've since I started, uh, as I had mentioned, I took over as executive director in 2017, and the thought was that I would, you know, have the position for a year, and then recruit an executive director, but this was, you know, Trump had come into office and it's been nonstop ever since on the immigration front. So, yeah, uh, to get to the economy, I think a good place to start is the definition of the re of recession. That's changed now. <laughs> so, it used, I mean, basically the definition is two, two quarters of negative GDP growth and uh, that it's no longer, it's no longer, that's no longer the case for obvious like politicized political reasons and then then kind of looking at like prior to the pandemic even then like you look like the yield curve inverted in 2019 right. so really like there should have been a recession uh prior to that but then obviously there was all the stimulus and there was there was a recession that was like it was kind of bizarre because it was severe but it was classified as very very short like the very like the early part of 2020, like the late late spring uh, to early summer, and then you just have like all these. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously the media kind of is lagging. The media is dishonest, but then they'll say there there was no inflation. Inflation's transitory, and then they'll start talking about it, but then they'll back down again. And it's pretty obvious it's that they don't want to spook the stock market. But then there's also partisan reasons, like. If they support Joe Biden, they don't want to. They don't want to say anything uh, bad about the economy. They're just overall dishonest. And uh, like Bloomberg, they're calling it a vibe session, which is like that's like top tier gaslighting, saying that yeah, like the vibes of the recession is because of like 
bad vibes. Then you have someone like Jim Cramer. Like, he gave people, like, terrible advice on... Oh, uh, in 2000, on, right. Yeah, Remember the Lehman Brothers crash. Yeah, and then, like, why is he... He's still on the air, and he's sort of become, like, this, like, a meme. But, yeah, just overall, yeah, he's a total joke. And then overall, like, obviously the pandemic, like, there were small businesses were crushed. And it is true, like, the corp, some, a lot of the corporate chains, they were... Uh, for a while, they were increasing hire- hiring because of the stimulus. But then overall, just like overall, there's like this downplaying of economic malaise and like how the media downplayed inflation and then the recession. And then, or they'll say a recession, it's going to be a mild recession. Even then, like I know Jamie Dimon, uh, right. like JP Morgan, he said there was going to be an economic tsunami uh, several months ago. And now Jamie Dimon is back to saying the economy is doing great. But then even even like uh, even Zucker, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, even he admitted that there was going to be a severe recession. So they just kind of like fluctuate back and forth, and it's insane. But yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. And, and just and looking let's at how like the stock, yeah, like these bear, these kind of like these bear rallies have. Even though like the stock, even though the economy is bad, like you are still seeing these like stock market rallies. And uh, it's just not, I mean, the stock, yeah, the stock market's not a really good, it's not really good to rely upon as a metric, but I think like the, something like the misery index, that that's a much better metric to rely upon rather than, not just stocks, but I'd say even more so than, than jobs. Absolutely, because I think at this point, we're seeing a huge disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. And Let's unpack this. You know, you mentioned what is a recession early on. And I like that joke that goes, it's a recession when your neighbor is unemployed and it's a depression when you're unemployed. And I know a lot of people right now that are working, even though, you know, you see, you know, they're looking to hire people. I know a lot of businesses that are cutting back. So this has well, they were for a while. They were looking to hire people, but that was a very that the thing is that that is true. But it was a very temporary, uh, short period of time due to like just all the massive flow of uh, stimulus. I was gonna say, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, in between what I had done for several years was commercial property tax in California and. I had clients there in California, Arizona, Texas, Florida, and the District of Columbia. And I had left that for a while, but I got back to it in late 2006 because for me and others that understood real estate, we knew there we knew it was going to get bad. All you had to do was look at the cost of housing, uh, what was going on in both the, the uh, private and commercial real estate markets. But, and then what was going on in terms of wages? And there, they just didn't correlate at all. Wages were essentially stagnant, whereas real estate was going through the roof. So where you want to be when real estate tanks is doing property tax work. So I personally, I got out of the markets in early 2007. I got into doing property tax in late 2006, got went back a bunch of us who had done it earlier and not made a lot of money, but we all thought we were going to get rich. 
And eventually the market did what we thought it would. It would it, it just it, it imploded. Are you talking How, about more recently or before? No, no, I'm talking crash. 2008 because right. it's it's important because there there's implications for today. But the thing is this, none of us made a lot of money. You know, and I left that in 2014, so I did it for about 8 years. Whereas we should have been wealthy doing property tax, but you know, we kind of got by. And the reason for that is we were not prepared for QE1. Oh, well, remember TARP? Yeah. <laughs> we weren't prepared for TARP, QE1, QE2, QE3, all of these things that would have these assets that whose values had dropped to the ground, banks would have been dying. Because when this happened at the end of the uh, Reagan administration, we had the savings and loan debacle. All of these stranded assets were placed into the Resolution Trust Corporation, and they were being sold for 10 cents on the dollar, essentially. I know because my office was the the one that a fellow who was a, a real estate mogul who had become the governor of Arizona, I was in his office. So it was, it was interesting times. But... Um, so this, as you mentioned, the stimulus, we became habituated, I think, to the stimulus. So the market doesn't respond the way it should. And I think this is really unhealthy because we should have had this cleansing of the markets. All of these uh, mispriced uh, assets, uh, whether they were equities or real estate, should have went to ground and then we get back to normal, get back to good. But that never happened. So I think we've been in this weird world. And then, of course, uh, well, we saw that too, don't you think? Just prior to COVID, the overnight lending of the banks. Right. They didn't, right. Yeah, for all throughout the 2010s. So like it is, it's called like, I forget who called it like, well, the super bubble, I forget who called it the bubble to end all bubbles. I forget who coined that. But yeah, like not just... We have the bubble from COVID, the pandemic, but then we also have like the uh, bubble left over from the 2010s that didn't that was supposed to crash uh, from the when the yield curve inverted in 2019, but that didn't happen. I mean, obviously, as you pointed out, there should have been a much worse crash in 08. Like I don't know, like a severe recession or even a depression. But again, like all these things, like the the TARP stimulus, quantitative easing, it was successful at least temporarily temporarily and propping up the economy and the bubble was maintained for most of the 2010s and then the pandemic so yeah they do take like bubbles take longer to pop than anticipated because even with like with like the mm -hmm. tech bubble uh that would that took from about 2000 mm -hmm. to 2002 to, to pop so it is right. it's sort of a gradual thing like who knows how long this will go on for like we could see it a uh, major uh, stock market crash they see for some reason they seem to happen in the fall i don't i have no idea why but yeah like we could see a major one in the fall but who knows like this could go on for another year or two but they, yeah, they do really take longer could. than anticipated and but the thing is like with like the quantitative easing and now i know like the new the new bill from joe biden there might even be a tax on stock buyback so we have that and then depends to see like what the Fed will do with quantitative, if there's going to be quantitative tightening and they've been really, they've done the interest rates, but the Fed has been hesitant 
to do quantitative tightening. But like with stock buybacks, like that's probably that could very well be taxed. And certainly, like right. you pointed out, people are very delusional and delirious during bubbles. But like all the all the like respected, like even mainstream financial figures like Michael Burry, Larry right. Grantham, and Charlie Munger have you like even like fairly establishment figures in finance have predicted a major crash. And even like yeah, or Muhammad Alirian, but then even then. Yes. He's kind of backing down now. Interesting. You know, just uh, over the last couple weeks, uh, Andy Shuckman had mentioned, and this came out yesterday, that he had a client that bought $50 million from him in gold and silver and demanded that it all be, you know, either American Eagles or Buffaloes. So they did about 25 million in gold and about and the balance in silver, and this was a billionaire. And he's he was allowed he's allowed they they gave him permission to talk about the deal because he was, you know, doing everything he could. He was talking to every wholesaler he knew to buy to fill this order. And as crazy as they think, you know, apparently the accountants of this woman who did this. Uh, the deal went through, and she had stated there are other billionaires looking to buy hard assets like gold and silver. So, I mean, that's really, don't you think, putting your money where your mouth is, where these people really are, uh, they may not, they're not yeah, seeing yeah, inflation that, like, transitory. All the billionaires are buying up like hard assets, gold or, or uh, farmland, and uh, they're, they're selling their stocks. Well, I guess what I've heard is more like the propping up of the stock market with these bear rallies. It's more to do with like small scale, uh, these like small scale like retail invest investors are propping up the stock market. But a lot of most of the billionaires have have uh, sold off like most of their stocks. Yeah, I mean, when you have someone like a Michael Burry telling you, you know, telling you to get out, uh, I think we should and. I think what we're seeing are these machinations that they've been able to prop up the equity markets while at the same time selling Main Street down down the down down the uh, down the old uh, proverbial. Uh, it's just tubes. remarkable. There's people who are who appear to be financially well off who are so it's either they're they're so ignorant or stupid to buy the propaganda, or they're just really desperate or greedy. It could be both. Yeah, it's again, but it's interesting. I mean, personally, I in 2009, I was the smartest guy in the room because I was out of the equity markets. Uh, I everything I forecasted about the uh, commercial real estate market had come true. And that's gonna, but, that's supposed to be the biggest, the biggest but, bubble to crash this time, commercial real estate. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, I agree. You look at the vacancy rates. But the thing is, Rob, I didn't get back into the equity markets. You know, that was my mistake because I, I didn't catch the, uh, the, the, the big uplift from there. But I think this time, because we're seeing, and what I don't even know what's propping up the commercial real estate markets now. When you look at the vacancies of some of these large uh, properties, for instance, a friend of mine, they had an office in the Transamerica building in San Francisco and beautiful office in that 
They had large windows that opened up to the bay and they're all working from home now. They didn't renew their lease. So how, I don't understand how commercial real estate, particularly office, is surviving right now. Yeah, who knows what's going to happen. It's going to impact well, the impact it will have on remote work or it could be, I mean, long term, it could be converted to real estate. But the next few years, I mean, that's going to be uh, that that bubbles. I think like the 08 crash, it was more residential real estate and that that's vulnerable right. too. But commercial real estate is a big one this time. And then just going over like uh, jobs number, unemployment, like this new jobs report, that is very bullish and it looks good on paper, like saying that half a million new jobs were created. But then you have to look at the more specific details. So one thing I've been hearing from various financial YouTubers is that there's a good video from the, the YouTuber Money GPS about this, but that a lot of people, people working multiple jobs are counted. Also, people working part-time could be counted. Then there's been like the, the summer job growth and like tourism, right. leisure, and hospitality, which that's summer. Summers tend to have more economic growth in general because probably like tourism's part of that, but that's obviously temporary and like those jobs are all going to be gone in the fall. So yeah, and then also you have to factor in like the jobs recovered from the pandemic rather than new jobs created. And then... Uh, yeah, like all these different factors. So like you have to think about wages are declining if you adjust them for inflation. And then sometimes jobs do spike slightly, like right before a big recession. I, I have no idea why, but that's just something that has yes. that happens. And then, yeah, like the, a lot of the good, the good jobs report means that the Fed is now pressured to raise interest rates. Uh, that, that's a factor too. And then also uh, this is we've talked about this before. But unemployment stats don't count those who are no longer seeking employment. And then there were, I remember like last month, there were reports of mass layoffs, especially like white collar jobs. So the jobs being created, they're uh, low wage jobs, either uh, manufacturing, retail or the service sector. And like you saw that Walmart is laying off a lot of their corporate positions. So yeah, you and then, yeah, like and then also like there has been talk of like, labor shortages, but that's obviously, uh, I mean, yeah, like, but overall, like the, the jobs report appears like a bunch of bullshit. It is. I mean, it, it's really a doctor document. And every time I see something rosy painted, what they'll do, they'll do a revision the following month. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's not so rosy. But you're right about the layoffs. I mean, Tesla just laid off uh, 229 people in San Mateo, uh, and these I think will be I think targeted. Especially, especially tech, because tech is more dependent upon Fed policy, like quantitative easing, than other industries. Right, and this kind of gets into you know our U.S. tech workers group. Uh, right now, there's a healthcare uh, outfit in Ohio that's laying off 650 IT and back support people. And what they're doing is they're going to move all that stuff to an H-1B visa dependent Indian consulting company. So it, that's how we're getting the wage stagnation, because you would think when you look at the productivity gains of American workers over the past 20 years, you know, we haven't seen that reflected in wage growth uh, because 
there's all kinds of ways, you know, through immigration, whether it's people coming here legally to work as immigrants or illegally, that's there's ways. So they're counting. There. Uh, that's another factor I didn't I didn't forgot to mention that. But among job growth, you have to factor in. Uh, it's also counting. Uh, so immigrants are also counted in new job growth. Right. Exactly. Uh, so the um, what was I going to say? So uh, what we're seeing. So because. It's pretty well documented. There's at least 12 studies that I could point to. Uh, studies done um, uh, by like Anthony Ito, Joseph Price, uh, David Yeager, Michael Amwar. These are all peer-reviewed studies that will demonstrate that, you know, for every percent of increase in immigration, there is a corresponding drop in wages. So, you know, it, you might look at a demographic like, you know, black men who are who dropped out of high school, you know, that could be as much as 1.7%, the differential there. So that's another, so we've seen this really squirrely, you know, here we are in the middle of an inflation. So you would also expect to see wage inflation, and but we have be interesting to see if uh, the government or just establishment in general pushes more immigration to overcompensate for the real estate for the crash in real estate. It, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, about a month ago, I did a, a paper uh, entitled, um, uh, if if you thought NIMBYs were bad, meet the YIMBYs. And NIMBY is not in my backyard, and YIMBY is yes in my backyard. So we right. you know, have all these people that are welcoming you know, immigrants. But what they don't realize, you know, um, if you're a wage earner or a salaried professional and you've got a fixed income, uh, it's you have to under you you you're feeling this affordability crisis when it comes to you know real estate, whether it's buying or renting. Uh, and you know, according to the New York Times, home values and rents have absolutely skyrocketed. Where at the same time, wages have remained stagnant. And this, uh, you know, in large uh, portion again is um, due to immigration. I'll give you an example. You know, uh, in a Bloomberg article recently, uh, the Center for Real the uh, Center of Real Estate Director MIT at MIT, an economics professor, his name is Albert Says, found that a one percent increase in immigrant population at the metro level leads to a one percent rise in housing prices. And you're still in California, right? Right. So think about it. Uh, in Los Angeles, in that metro area, 33% of the population are foreign-born. Oh, and yeah, you like wonder the why supply, there's an affordability issue. <laughs> yeah, the supply and demand issue. And uh, I guess your point about Yimbis is they talk a lot about supply. I mean, they're right about supply, but then... Your criticism of them is more. Uh, there is, there are different. Like you have these, like that. That's a whole. I mean, that's like a whole other like tangent. But you do have these like kind of left wing, uh, left nimbies who say they're in the pockets of like big developers and like BlackRock, and that's like a whole other t uh, tangent mm -hmm. off the economy. But it is interesting. Your critique of of yimbies is more their 
So their, their cornerstone policy is increasing the supply via reforming zoning, but then they're part of a kind of broader, like philosophical, ideological framework that includes immigration. That was like your point in the article, I think. Right. You know, live denser and be happier kind of thing at the end of the day. And that's just, it's just simply not working that well. I mean, the other thing is then you have, if you're, say, a NIMBY, you do have, in like the Bay Area in LA, like a lot of affluent, like limousine liberal, like older homeowners are both uh, for immigration and then NIMBYism, like the kind of example, like one of my articles about like overpopulation in California, I reference like Rob Reiner in Malibu. And that position, like if you're NIMBYism plus immigration, isn't that worse because you're you're constraining supply and demand even more so? Absolutely. I mean, and I love that article, by the way. That was great. I mean, don't you find that there's just so darned hypocritical at the right. end of the day? And, um, you know, I'm looking at there was a Urban Institute article uh, paper about, you know, how <clears throat> these developers, again, because... You know, to meet the demand, they got to build the apartments and the homes. But the people building them love to exploit, you know, the you know illegal immigrants because they can reduce their overall wages by forty percent. You know, doing this, their costs of building a house by forty percent, and yet, you know, what they're getting for these homes keeps going up and up and up. It's it's really a strange set of circumstances there in los angeles like demand there is well, there's going to be demand like in certain like core areas but uh like there's still building like a lot of these places uh one of the financial youtubers like jeremiah babe was showing mm. these uh these like news track housing subdivisions going up in the inland empire and the coachella valley like palm springs area and like he sees like yeah, I do see, like, they're under construction, but you see a lot of similarities to, like, the 08, like, crash and foreclosure crisis. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and it's, you know, it was funny when that, the bubble burst in 2008. Again, uh, I'm sure you watched that movie um, uh, about Michael Burry. What was it called? The Big... Um, the Big Short. The Big Short. You know, uh, at that time, I didn't do it, but I knew people that were shorting home builders uh, for all the same reasons. And the problem is you, it, you just had to have the timing right because then, you know, and you had, you saw Lennar's stock price collapse, Pulte's collapse, Meritage Homes collapse, KB Home collapse. And, but now they're all back to good, but even they're, uh, I think I don't think they're doing that well right now. I haven't looked at them recently, but um, yeah, I think this time around, as you mentioned, I think we're going to see a real hit to commercial real estate. Yeah, I think it will be both, but I think it'll be commercial real estate more so because of the added like pandemic angle. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but then again, like maybe if a lot of that commercial real estate is is transformed into housing depending on like taxation and, and zoning regulations that could be a good thing long term. you mean like to adaptively reuse yeah, adaptively like a... reuse like office to housing but that the long term but i think short term it's going to be a disaster but then i will yeah i would do want to get to kind of inflation and yeah basically it does seem like stagflation inflation plus uh 
GDP decline and slowing economic growth. And yeah, yeah, so the Fed, they're raising interest rates, but I'm not really sure if quantitative tightening QT, like some financial YouTubers are alleging that the Fed is actually out, they're alleging that it's out, the Fed is outright lying about quantitative tightening, but they did, but regardless, they seem fairly hesitant about that. But it is overall, it's like the worst, it's the worst PMI since the last, the last yeah. two recessions, the worst inflation since the 70s. And I think kind of looking back at what happened in the 70s is uh, like right now, the number, again, like with, like with jobs, like the inflation numbers could also be big. Some people are saying it's as high as 18 or even more, more 18% or more, but the official number is about 9, 9%. And in the 70s, uh, inflation, like a taper, but then and there was like a big surge again. So yeah, that, that I mean, that will, could, could likely happen. It could kind of taper off at 9%, and then we could see another big surge where it goes up to like 15 to 20%. So yeah, like just all these different, these different kind of narratives about inflation, and obviously, uh, yeah, like narratives about like price gouging from the left, and I think I think that is true. I think there is price gouging by corporations, and but it but it also downplays then the reality of inflation is caused by financial and monetary policy. So there is both both price gouging and inflation. And obviously, inflate, spending more, like mm. Biden's uh, ironically titled uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Weren't they like, denying inflation? Just if he was going to like write everyone a, a check, it'd be one thing. But it just seems most of it like more, more just pork spending and corruption, and it's only going to make inflation worse. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, inflation is a huge problem. And then with these kind of like narratives, like. Uh, it's kind of like framed as like modern monetary uh, policy versus like we need more austerity. And then even kind of going back to like the pandemic stimulus, like it did, the spending did cause inflation, but there's also like a lot of, there's a lot of gaslighting on how the revenue was spent because it's sort of like the, again, like most of the spending, like most of it was pork either to state bureaucracies or, or, like PP loans to corporations, billing out like government, state governments and corporations. But there's a lot of like, gaslighting because like the amount of money that people got in direct stimulus payouts, stimulus checks was actually like not, not actually only like a small, very, very, very small percent of that. Well, you see that, that gets me into that. You, what you just said made me think about, rethink a lot of this nature of, the, the inflation, because a couple of things cause inflation. One is you have a lot of money chasing a, 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 a you know, goods, a, a lower supply of goods. And we've seen that during the pandemic where we had disruptions to the supply so it's a, chain. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a number of things. It's the Fed and, and monetary policy and printing. Uh, it's uh, supply chain issues. It's price gouging, and then also, yeah. Like, but it doesn't like get you talked said about. Too, I think the other thing that doesn't get talked about less is when when someone borrows is able to borrow from a private bank due to low interest rates. That also contributes to inflation. Yeah, but like you said too, when you looked at what actually got down to the people, and you looked at the size of these stimulus uh, bills, 
very little actually got to the people that went into buying the purchase of goods and services. And a lot of it actually ended up as bank reserves that ultimately were not let out. And so perhaps at one hand, we do have this inflation that's being caused by, you know, a lot of dollars chasing small amount of goods. But then also, is it also being created by the weakness of the dollar itself? Uh, when you, uh, so I'm not sure where it's actually coming from. I question where it's coming from. Uh, I, and I'd like to get your thoughts on, do you think ultimately it's transitory or not? Because I think it is, it is in the long run transitory because I believe we have a big deflation event coming up. I think we're going to have a depression, uh, not this year, but possibly we'll see it next year. And I think it's, yeah, we're going to be so, in the soup for a long time. Like there could be, I mean, either way it's bad. There could be, uh, I see a number of scenarios. I see kind of like long, I either see like long-term stagflation lasting about uh, three, uh, three to six years where it's just kind of like where, where inflation lingers and we have a gradual GDP decline or we could have like a really severe recession to do a depression, but it's deflationary. Either of those two scenarios could happen, but either, either scenario, either way, it's, it's pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the, these things are, are naturally occurring. If, if the markets were left to themselves, I think we'd see some ups and downs and eventually out, but some real aberrations are out there. You know, I'm just looking at the war on food. Uh, what they've been doing here in this country, as well as the Netherlands and Germany, and I just scratch my head and go, why? What is going on? And again, it's uh, like it's... You, there's a case there are legitimate ecological issues about food production, but it just seem, it doesn't seem like that. It just seems like a blade and power grab. Absolutely. So, yeah, I guess, and then also with the dollar, like with inflation, you'd think the dollar should be weakening, but then for a while, like it was reported, that actually the interest rates rate, like temporarily the U.S. dollar was strong, and uh, like it was much cheaper to go to Europe. And, mm -hmm. But who knows? I mean, who knows what's going on? Maybe temporarily, maybe raising the interest rates does give the dollar advantage over other nations because the U.S. is a world reserve status. So, yeah, raising interest rates does actually does uh, screw over other nations' econom economies. And it was kind of when uh, Volcker raised right. interest rates in the 80s, it, like, just, it caused an economic collapse in Latin America. But again, it is a way, but actually it is kind of a way to give the U.S. economy leverage over other nations. But like the degree, like with the world reserve currency, uh, U.S. world reserve currency, like the degree it's at risk because I don't, like I don't see China, like with their economy, the yuan or the, yuan or the renminbi, yeah. like I don't see China having the world reserve currency, but I could see a kind of like bifurcation where the U.S. is the world reserve currency for its own geopolitical sphere, and then maybe either China or the BRICS nations have their own uh, reserve currency. Because I, I think to be a reserve currency, there has to be a bedrock of the rule of law. I mean, I wouldn't trust an audit. I don't care if a big four accounting firm did it in China or Hong Kong. 
I and I wouldn't trust it. Yeah, in I don't Russia. see that. Ha- I don't really see that happening. I think because I think the United States is in decline, but China. I don't really see China becoming a total superpower either. I see a multipolar uh, world or a bifurcation between the U.S. geopolitical sphere and a Sinosphere. Yeah, and I kind of see that myself. I think the battle ultimately is for Eurasia, and which is why I'm really concerned about the stance, you know, the European countries, whether you want to call them NATO or World Economic Forum, and the U.S. I mean, Russia doesn't have, ultimately have a friend in China. Their lot is better thrown in with Europe. And I think that's uh, we're pushing them into China, and we should be bringing them closer to uh, Europe. Uh, and for you know, for those very reasons. I, and you know, where is China? You know, I recall you know having turned sixty uh, back in the nineteen eighties, were all these books out about you know Japan is number one and the power of the Ministry of. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was the case with, with Japan. I think you get, like, I think right-wing populists like Tucker Carlson say that, <clears throat> they say China's going to take over the world, and then on the other hand, like, the geopolitical consultant Peter Zihan, I don't know if you're... Yes, I love Peter. Yeah, he you know, says He says the opposite, China's going to collapse, but I think it's, the reality is somewhere in between China has vulnerabilities, such as they're rapidly aging... And yes. uh, they have supply chain issues where they have to import most of their food and oil, but they have leverage with like the Silk Road and with other nations. So I think there's some nuance between like Tucker Carlson and Peter Zion. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think you're right. Ultimately, the truth is going to be something in the middle. Uh, as Zion likes to point out, China has a lot of vulnerabilities, mostly dealing from, you know, coming from their supply chain. I think also uh, the supply chain, they import basically all their food and oil. So the U.S. in a war like with the naval blockade in the Strait of Malacca, they're very vulnerable, their aging issue. Then also the middle income status of a nation where they don't have, they're not quite a rich nation, but they can't depend on providing cheap labor like a third world nation. There's, they have this vulnerability uh, being a middle income uh, nation. Absolutely. Years ago, it was during the Obama administration, I had a conversation with the CEO of Air China. And he literally said to me, he said, you think you have demographic problems? Look at ours. And he began to say, you know, by this, you know, point in time, so many people will be in retirement age. And and that too, yeah, like the aging aging issue, that's also going to contribute to financial issues. Because what happened is, I'd actually say the the developed nations aging, because what happened is when the boomers were saving for retirement, that propped up the stock market, sure. pumped in a lot of money to the developing world. But when when there's this mass retirement, that's going to have a huge impact on the global economy and the stock market, including including in developing nations as well. Yeah, and that gets us into the conversation on the fourth turning and the turnings. Um, as uh, Harry Dent was always very quick to point right. out, because he looked at it from a, an economic standpoint, whereas Strauss and Howe kind of overlaid politics and or then geopolitics. Also, uh, Peter Turchin has his own take on that as well. I think he uses like a, some scientific metric 
to measure crises in these like cycles. Yeah, because like Nenner has his <laughs> software, Martin Armstrong has his Socrates, but you know, as as Dent would say, you know, the Great Depression was caused, and this reinforces what you just said. Uh, the Great Depression was caused when the Henry Ford generation started to retire. They didn't; they weren't buying cars, homes, college educations. The stagflation of the '70s was when the Bob Hope generation uh, was retiring and pulling on those retirement savings. You're the and Great Depression was when the Henry Ford generation was retiring. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Harry Dent's view on, it. and and I I subscribe to that because, you know. People can say, well, we, World War II got us out of it to an extent, but ultimately it's the it's the dog wagging the tail. The economy is just so powerful. And when you look at, you know, Harry Dent's there calculating when Americans will be buying the most potato chips. I mean, there's a point, you know, we so that's how I kind of look at the economy. Uh, at this time, and you know, 2008, you know, is when the boomers. The, be started. the best two metrics: it's buying potato chips and the misery index. Yeah, Those two. Exactly. yeah, like just all these things going on. Uh, obviously, the the Ukraine war impacted supply chains uh, with like fertilizer, uh, post-date uh, wheat, uh, just all exacerbated like existing supply chain issues and then like interest rates are going to impact the third world and we're seeing global uh, civil unrest like Sri Lanka is the best example yeah. but you're seeing in other nations uh, too I think I think Peru Pakistan just count countless and like the risk for like global conflicts like I don't really see there's issues with like with Russia getting entangled in a conflict directly with NATO and then like Taiwan and China and the whole like semiconductor issue with the supply chains. But I think most likely it's just going to be like a series uh, of like smaller wars like spread out. It's, it's hard to predict that. It's, it's really that's, hard like, more, to predict. That's like the more likely uh, scenario, but yeah, like just going, going back to like the economic scenario, it seems to be like, the stagflation of the 70s plus the debt crisis of 08 and the housing crash, a tech bubble. Then on top of that, there's not going because of inflation and debt. And then there's this, there's like the supply chain issues, but because of inflation and the debt, it's going to be very difficult for for there to be a kind of another a bailout like there was after the 08 crash. And then what happens is either people, if people uh, are a mess, unemployed and there's no there's no help there's going to be mass civil unrest but if there is help that will increase inflation so that i mean that's like a worst case scenario but that that's the kind of like worst case economic scenario but uh but yeah like, but, it, but in to... the fourth turning you can you can i don't think we're gonna even i am sure that in 1930 let's look at 1935 I'm sure no one would have said there's going to be this world war that's going to take kill 40 million plus people. Uh, it's going to be waged all over the world. It's like the end of history concept. People assume that the status quo is eternal, which is right. which is idiotic. And you know, I'm reminded uh, Oswald <coughs> Spengler, the 
who was a, the last of a long line of German historian philosophers, wrote a book called Decline of the West. And in the introduction, he was talking about how everyone was calling him this great soothsayer because he actually laid out pretty closely World War One and the, the tensions leading up to it. You know, the, the, the assassination of the Archduke was simply the 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 uh, match that got dropped on a lot of fodder uh, for the flames uh, or the kindling for the flames. But, you know, I think we could see where there's a lot of tension, where there's a lot of there's going to be competition for scarce resources. I guess or predi- predictions for uh, that there could be like. A scenario like Egypt would go to war with Ethiopia about the whole like water supply of the Nile and the the dam Ethiopia is building like scenarios like that. Mm-hmm. And why wouldn't they? Uh, energy is, as Doomberg says, energy is life. People will go, and we rely on fossil fuels. Um, you know, getting back to Peter Zihan, he he says that we're in this great position, but I think his logic is flawed because. He has this notion of Saudi America that that on the and the bedrock of that is fracking. And unfortunately, these fracked wells, they produce, but they but dissipate yeah. pretty quickly within yeah, a few they, years. Dude, I think they, Zion, like I think, like I enjoy listening to him, but I do think there could be like some bias as him being a consultant to to corporations. But I think, in some ways, like he. He talks about these crises, but maybe he does. Yeah, he's actually like maybe overly optimistic about America because he thinks that America having the energy resource advantage is enough. Like he, in some ways, he's like maybe not. He talks about these serious crises, but in some ways, he can be overly optimistic. Yeah, I think so. It's uh, so somewhere between uh, Peter Zihan and Chris Martinson. Have you? watched or listened to any of Chris Martinson's podcasts or courses. He has a site called Peak Prosperity, and he talks a lot. His battle cry is, you can't have infinite growth on a planet with finite resources. So, you know, people like me and Chris get labeled Malthusian. Yeah, I think, like, deep ecology or similar. I'm not familiar with Mm -hmm. him, but it reminds me of, like, James Howard Kunstler. Yes, actually... Uh, in 2018 or 17, I had Chris Martinson, James Howard Kunstler, Mike, John Michael Greer, Dimitri Orlov, and Frank Morris. I was Morris listening to a, a podcast I did of James Howard Kunstler in 2016, and he used the he actually used the word an economic reset back then. Interesting. Wow. I think I think that's what you know, folks like the World Economic Forum are gunning for. Uh, but but don't you think, Rob, what's coming out of these, let's call them a spokesmodel for evil, Klaus Schwab, this notion of you will own nothing and like it, uh, that's frightening to me. And if that's what they're looking to create, which they seem to be down the track of. I think uh, that's that- what, yeah, what a, a lot of the segment of elites want, but the thing is, is it take for that kind of like these dystopian scenarios? Like they take that immense amount of organization. I just think there's too much like chaos in the world for something like that to, to be pulled off. 
I think like we're seeing it in Sri Lanka. I mean, right. here in the U.S., it will manifest in high prices, and sometimes high prices are the cure for high prices. But in places like Burma, Sri Lanka, uh, Peru, it's it, it. These are government topplers. Yeah, like the Arab Spring, and then in the Arab Spring, like it's much worse. That happened, and that was only like that was far less significant issue with food supply than what's going on now. Uh, before I, I wrap up, I guess I would like to touch on a few, a few other issues, but uh, since you were talking about immigration at, at the beginning, do you have thoughts on some of the current issues with the current border crisis, which obviously the current border crisis is going to get much worse because of all these global crises that we just talked about, and then a number of things like the Supreme Court ruling, which actually was Trump's appointees who ended Trump's uh, Remain in Mexico policy, and then a lot of like policy issues, and then uh, you also talked about like uh, tech layoffs, and that that's in connection to immigrant visas. So your thought, your just thoughts on like immigration policy where it is now, and uh, the crisis at the border, which I think it could be the I am not sure, but it could be the worst in history. Yeah, oh, it is the worst in history. Uh... Already, more people have rushed the border uh, by August of this year than all of last year. And last year was about 2 million people. <laughs> this is insane. But I like to take a step back and get really conspiratorial because there's a context that I like to put all this in. And <clears throat> I think it goes back to the 90s when they couldn't fix Social Security and Medicare, and they knew eventually those were going to run out. I think what happened is they stopped investing in America because this was when, you know, we saw, you know, these they, they were began the offshoring of jobs, the investment in jobs and started bringing in a workforce that didn't have the expectations for retirement at 65 or at 67 now that's true uh, but Medicare. because like because there's so much chaos like it's going to have that much change in a short period of time has a kind of accelerationist impact and like, exactly. what's going on with the governor of texas like i was kind of like what he's doing shipping people from the border from texas to new york like i was at first kind of dismissive of him, of him as kind of the usual republican thing where they want to, where Republicans do things that are symbolic to make a point, but not really. But this, this is actually, actually, this has had a, a tremendous impact. You think about like corporate interest, and they want it kind of like orderly. They want change to, uh, to change society, but they want at least like to happen orderly because it's like everything is happening at such a fast rate. Like the kind of relevant to like the turning theory. And crisis, it is. It is like having an accelerationist uh, impact. Yeah, it's almost because along that accelerationist theme, it's like they had this long-term plan. So I guess there's and I'm both. Thinking... There's like there's like uh, dissident figures who are they they call themselves accelerationists. It's like worse is better. They, they the more the more chaos happens, like the more more of a backlash that's like a there's going to be that's a philosophy and then there's speculation whether like those in power whether they're accelerationist 
Or they, or they more, it's more like the frog in the bowling pan theory. It's interesting. Yeah, Machiavelli, who believed in like, if you're right. going to just clean house, clean house, get it over with. But I'm thinking the intention was that Hillary Clinton was going to be president, you know, when the, when the election of 2016. And then we would have seen the war with North Korea. Then we would have had a controlled COVID <laughs> as opposed to one that kind of was the, the release of it was a bit fractured. And the rush to the border would have been more controlled and sustained. It wouldn't, wouldn't, and they'd have been more in control of the levers of power. Yeah, like uh, what, or what's happening, like the whole, like the, the FBI raid on, on and Donald Trump in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, yeah, like that's just, that, I mean, that, that's obviously insane, like something you would expect from like a, a banana republic. But, and it's so random because Trump, the, the whole there were investigations against Trump, but it feels like so so random, and it's like no, things are not. But a lot of a lot of ways, like I want to get your thoughts on on the raid against Trump, but it feels like everything. It's not even like it's not so much like planned out. It just right. well, yeah, it feels more. Just feels like let's, so let's chaotic. Let's here. Let's just go after Trump. But also too, when you look at the way, and I'll just step back for a moment. When you look at the way Clinton ran her campaign in 2016, it's like they took the template from 1992 when Bill ran and just advanced it. No changes. This is how we do things. And I think there's a huge disconnect between these elites that are driving these uh, policies, not even policies, it's even more strategic than that, these movements that they really are disconnected from the reality of the day. So they're really uh, caught in this position where they're forced to react. It's like, oh, my gosh, we have to do something because if we don't, we're, we're going to lose bigly in November. Yeah, the thing is, like, with, what they're doing with Trump, it doesn't seem like a calm, cold, calculated Machiavellian would do. It seems right. more like they're, like they're acting like they're panicking. And I think that's that's my impression of all of this. With quote unquote conspiracy theory concept, like there is there is truth to to some of it, but I think like conspiracy theorists talk about those in power, like they're these all powerful omniscient forces, which which is obviously like that that way of thinking is it has like some nuanced truth to it, but it's also deeply flawed. Right. It's, you know, they're at the end of the day, they're humans. They make mistakes. They miscalculate. Uh, they didn't factor in how China might respond to something. Uh, they didn't factor in how Germany might respond uh, to something. So, yeah, and we'll see it play out uh, again in these the, this time of a fourth turning. Uh, there's this view of let's just go for it, see what happens. Let's yeah, just so roll the dice. I think with I, I don't know if you read the the article I wrote the my Substack piece uh, about the end. Is this the end of the end of history? And yeah. there was I guess if you look kind of like roughly summing up like eighties the eighties and nineties were fairly prosperous. It felt like the first two decades of the twenty first century. Uh, this century, the zero zeros and twenty uh, tens. Like obviously, you had you had you had nine uh, eleven. You had uh, the 08 crash. You had Occupy Wall Street. You had the Trump movement. 
But despite that, like I'd say overall, like those decades felt more decades of stagnation, and obviously, like there's something really depressing about stagnation. But uh, yeah, I mean, again, it's like it's hard to make predictions, but it does feel like the 2020s are going to be like a very chaotic. It just that's just how it seems so far. Yeah, and I think I I would agree with that's where I would put my money. Uh, I wouldn't downplay you know, the, the populist movement that's, that's going on right now. I was in Texas this weekend. I attended CPAC and talked to a lot of people. I'm, and CPAC is kind of a, a rhino point to surf. However, uh, 75% of it was definitely America first. The people that were on stage, the people that, you know, the crowd wanted to see, uh, we're definitely populist. Like, yeah, like Victor Orban, it wasn't. So you're, yeah, you are seeing. You're seeing. You're seeing a shift because, or do you see like mainstream, like mainstream conservatism, like Reaganism, as still having an influence, or you do see? Uh, no, I, I see. I see people reacting to solve problems the same way. Uh, I just look. You know, and I love Tom Frank's book, The People Know, The People N-O, Know, <laughs> where he really looks at the populist movements of the late uh, 19th century and early 20th century. I mean, when you look, you know, the whole concept, for instance, and this was Greidler's book, uh, Secrets of the Temple, the whole concept of the Federal Reserve didn't come from academics, Wall Street types, economists of the day. It came from barefoot farmers that were struggling under the gold standard. And they had this notion of a federal reserve that would react to, pro, you know, it would a lot for productivity. And, you know, William Jennings Bryant, you know. It's, inter did, it's interesting because William Jennings Bryant was actually against the gold standard and, and being pro gold standard was kind of like the wrong actually so he was on the opposite end of like the wrong well, well yeah because he was well the populists were against the gold standard because right. it was a highly deflationary uh system and it did that slow like there the are farmers. pros and cons like the gold standard prevents it prevents inflation but it True. also uh, puts limits on economic growth there are pros and cons right it, it, at that time it was preventing wage inflation and inflation for uh, crops that you know price inflation that would allow farmers to do better uh, but I bring that up because uh, Jennings Bryant ran a absolutely brilliant campaign and could have won the office however there was a fellow by the name of Hannah Hannah and he was really that version of, he was a, a political consultant genius. And he had gone to all of the, um, like at that time, the Fortune 500 companies. So he didn't have to really just go to New York City is all he had to do. And he told the businesses to open their books. And he said, give me 1% of your profits. And they did. So when William Jennings Bryant would go and speak in a city, he would have 10 other meetings, meetups, if you want to call them that, of his speakers, you know, slamming uh, the populace and Williams Jennings Bryant. I mean, they just, you know, out, at the end of the day, outspoke them and, you know, you know, won the war of, of ink. And 
in this whole process, they really um, hurt the, they, they did everything they could to discredit the populace. And they did a great job and it lingers to today because to me, I have a very favorable notion to the term populist and populism, but many people don't because uh, I see it as a, a way, a response to class warfare because uh, whether you whether Trump was being sincere or not, I believe he won in 2016 because he was actually speaking to class warfare because I think Trump deserves a lot of skepticism. He's deeply flawed, but it's important is like what he was responding to. So did you actually meet him? Oh, yeah, I met Trump on August 3rd, 2020. I was in the cabinet room with him and he actually wrote a uh, he signed an executive order that I helped write, which was a bottom to top review of all federal agencies to find out who was using these H-1B visa dependent contractors. And we also, we saved 200 Tennessee Valley Authority IT right. jobs from being outsourced. And, you know, the, the, the funny thing there is a week later, the Jacobin had an article about it. And pretty much, you know, it was a backhanded compliment to me, maybe. But they're like, why is this, you know, nativist, racist Kevin Lynn saving union jobs? That should be our job. Right, and I, right. I wrote him back and I said, guys, I, I subscribed to your magazine. <laughs> but uh, that's the thing. I mean, the thing is, what was Trump really doing when he was at his best? He was solving real world problems, not ideological problems. And I think that's where populism is going to continue to garner steam because the populists want to solve problems. The only thing that I found really concerning at CPAC, and I don't know how you feel about this, Robert, uh, but the religiosity that seems to be permeating a lot of the America First movement now. Um, when I see a governor of a state on stage saying he does what God tells him, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. That's I, interesting. With George Bush, there was a strong religious right influence. And then with 2016, like the Trump movement feel, felt more secular. And now mm -hmm. you're seeing a big, like, uh, it's called like Christian nationalism. That's become a huge thing on the right now. Yeah. And I'm noticing, um, you know, the uh, many people that I speak to uh, who are America First candidates really involved in the nuts and bolts and pulling the levers of the America First movement uh, are predominantly Roman Catholic. So I haven't quite figured out what's going on yeah, there. That's but yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because like the religious right was evangelical. I think evangelicals have, have declined in influence, but this like Catholic right thing is a huge phenomenon. Yeah, and what was an interesting phenomenon, talking about phenomena, because I live here in the city of Lancaster in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Is that Amish country? It is. And I thought it was someone was pulling, was spoofing everyone because the Amish, not, not like the Old Order Mennonite or different uh, groups of Mennonites on the spectrum there were attending Trump rallies, but actual Amish were pulling up in their carts and attending Trump rallies. Really? Because I thought they tend to avoid politics. They absolutely do. 
And when I spoke to friends of mine who know, for instance, whose families have been here since the 1750s, may not be Amish, but they have great relations. And I asked them, I said, is, is this true? And they're like, yeah, it's true, but they're all going to be in a lot of trouble. Okay, right. That's uh, interesting. I haven't heard of anyone getting in a lot of trouble. And I followed up. And, you know, I'm sure the elders, you know, looked on in dismay. But think about it. Uh, for the Amish to, you know, the only t other time they came out for some reason to vote for W, George W. Bush. All right. Uh, that I found really interesting, but I mean, they <laughs> there were Trump flags on Amish cards. I so do you I'd think never... do you think Trump will run in twenty twenty four, or do you think it's going to be someone else like DeSantis? I think for Trump not to run, he would have to say to himself, "I don't have the mental faculties to do it." Short of that, I believe he'll run. I think he's going to run uh, if for no other reason, just vengeance. Trump has like a huge, he has a huge ego, and I think, yeah, I think just for that reason, I think he could likely run, and then, but who knows, it could be, uh, I don't know, somebody was saying it could be DeSantis, Tucker Carlson might run, uh, maybe Jim, like Jimmy Dore, who's like a, like a left-wing Yeah, populist. I know Jimmy, yeah, mm -hmm. love he, his show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he may run as like a third party with the Populist Party. Really? Uh, huh. Not the Populist Party, the People's Party. And then on the Democrat side, who knows who will be? If it will be Kamala Harris or Gavin Newsom, who knows? I don't hey, think it will I got, be. Biden. I got a, I got a weird theory. I want to bounce it off. We're at the end of the show, but I think before I wrap up, if you want to, if you want to plug your theory, and then if you want to like plug your your different websites and social media. Okay, my theory is Kamala Harris. I hear these echoes of Spiro Agnew, and I'll leave that there, and. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to plug. If you want to get involved and help uh, us, just go to our website, www.ustechworkers.com. That's where we talk about employment visas like H-1B. Uh, and be sure to sign up for that newsletter that comes out every other week. And then we also have the site, progressivesforimmigration.org, uh, progressivesforimmigrationreform.org. Uh, go there. Uh, read our post, but also sign up for a newsletter there that comes out once a month. Uh, Kevin Lynn, a great show. Thanks so much for being on. Rob, this is always fun. Can't wait to ride again.